when I'm standing in front of the Aboriginal War Monument, I'm thinking about all of us. Everything that our ancestors have been doing to defend this country from the arrival of the Europeans up to this day. We were defending this nation, the border of this nation, for as far as we can go. That's General Joe Paul, the highest ranking First Nations officer in the Canadian Armed Forces. He's our guest today on this Remembrance Day episode of the Akamemak Podcast. Dance Tuao and welcome to the Akamemak Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Akamemak is Cree for you all persevere. So in other words, let's keep going and don't give up. On this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, with elders, and community leaders. And on this Remembrance Day, we honor the veterans who have served and sacrificed in Canada's conflicts and wars. This past Sunday, to mark Indigenous Veterans Day, a portrait of 98-year-old, highly decorated First Nations veteran, Philip Fable, was unveiled at the Canadian War Museum here in Ottawa. Philip is from the Sweetgrass First Nation Saskatchewan. He enlisted in the Canadian Army in 1942, and he took part in the D-Day invasion in France in 1944 at Juneau Beach. Here he is recalling what D-Day was like. When we landed in Normandy, we couldn't help people. Some of them might be wounded, eh? We didn't have time to stop and try to help them. We had orders to be in a certain area at a certain time, so it's up to the driver to, to get there. I don't remember if I ate that first day, and I don't remember if I slept that first night. One thing I was hauling some ammunition to a gun pit, an eh? artillery gun pit. And then when I got there, they opened up one case, I guess, and then they, they just put it in their gun and then they fired, and I got a, a gun blast. You know, well, they had earplugs, but I didn't have any, huh? They were going to put me in a hospital. I said, no, I'm able to get around without hearing. But after a while, I start hearing again, you know. There's convoys, not only us, but there's convoys with different outfits, yeah. And these guys were flying around upstairs. If they see a convoy coming, they come come right down and and fire their machine guns on us, you know. But we couldn't run. We had to keep on going. But being scared, well, what can you do? You can't do nothing, you know. After the war, Fable fought hard for First Nations veterans who were excluded from the benefits that non-Indigenous veterans received. He later served as Grand Chief of the Saskatchewan First Nations Veterans Association, and he also is a well-respected elder. He runs and participates in Sundance Lodges, in sweat lodges, and in pipe ceremonies. For more on the role of First Nations in the Canadian Armed Forces, I'm joined now by General Joe Paul. He is a member of the Huron-Wendat First Nation in Quebec, and he's the highest-ranking First Nations officer in the Canadian Armed Forces. Welcome, General Paul, to the Akamemak Podcast. Thank you, uh, Chief uh, Belgard. Uh, thank you for uh, hosting me. So, General, let's start with Philip Fable and his portrait that is now hung prominently at the Canadian War Museum. As a First Nations officer in the Canadian Armed Forces, 
What does lifting up Philip Fabel in this way mean to you? I must admit I was extremely uh, touched by uh, the event. Uh, tears in my eyes. Uh, what I felt uh, were kind of mixed emotion, you know. Uh, but, but first and foremost, I must say, pride. I was so uh, proud and, and honored to see that uh, that magnificent, you know, painting was now going to be hanging in our National War Museum. And, uh, you know, every single time I visit a museum, I always pay attention to the, uh, the First Nation, you know, section. And when you look at most of these institutions, mm -hmm. they look at the First Nation contribution from the beginning of, of the colony and then it, you feel like everything stops around 1850. Hmm. So very often our heritage is like, you know, in the New France, in the British colony section. Same thing, by the way, in our history, history book across the country. We are there at the beginning during the period of contact. But then in the middle of the 19th century, before the Indian Act came to be, we disappear. Well, we never disappeared. I mean, we've always been there. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mr. Favel, you know, gives us a great example of uh, that, that, that gesture, you know, that decision that all of these, uh, you know, First Nation people, uh, that decision that they all made together to join and serve. We, we were not ob obligated to serve. Mm -hmm. You know, we had no obligation whatsoever. And actually, you know, I was listening to uh, the people talking during the unveiling of, of that beautiful painting of Mr. Fable. I mean, I, I was hearing the same thing as a kid growing up on the reserve. Uh, the elders were saying, well, we had no obligation to serve because they were not our war. We had, mm -hmm. we had a treaty, we had a, an alliance, you know, with the British crown. Uh, but nonetheless, thousands of, of First Nation Métis soldiers decided to pony up and they signed up and, and, and they went to war. And they help, you know, Canada and all of these Western democracies to, to defend, you know, these values that are so important to all of us. Hmm. Uh, liberty, democracy, uh, and so on and so forth. So we owe them so much, all of them collectively. That's it. And watching him, you know, I, I do see these faces of these people from my own community who served during the Second World War. I can see Mr. Bastien. I can see uh, the Laney brothers, you know, four of them signed up. I think about mm -hmm. Mr. Stewie, who was uh, a sniper, you know, who did Normandy as well. And I recall uh, growing up in the community, we, we had, you know, the, the weekly bingo, right? So all the kids were going there. And my, my grandmother, you know, my Kogum was kind of organizing it all. And he was always there giving us, you know, uh, drinks, soda, and chips and stuff. Hmm. But he was a kind of a severe man. He was never smiling. Hmm. And I made the connection later on in my life. It's because he had done DD. He was a sniper. He had been involved in, you know, combat operation, and he had been deeply impacted by his service for the country. He was affected by that. I want to ask about, you made some good comments about conscription. Freedom from conscription. First Nations men and women didn't have to serve. There's no obligation to serve. 
the, the crown's wars. We were allies of the crown. And the treaty commissioner made that promise to our chiefs and leaders that we will not call your warriors out of your territories to come fight the queen's wars. And yet men and women volunteered in World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, you know, everything. And so it was there. And so even when Philip, he, he volunteered and he was fighting as equals over there, the front lines. But when he came back, he had to fight for justice again because he had to, he didn't go to veterans affairs for benefits like the non-indigenous veterans. He, he mm-hmm. had to go to Indian affairs again and the Indian agent. And that's where there was a lot of things that he had to fight for. Like they couldn't own land in fee simple. They were given land on their own Indian reserves already. First Nations reserves, CPs, certificates of possession. Uh, mm-hmm. Their spousal benefits weren't administered properly. They didn't mm-hmm. have access to education and training. So Philip had to fight for that justice. So there's things we learned from the past. And now you're in the armed forces now, a highest ranking person, First Nations person, thinking, what do we learn from the past? Some of the injustices that our, our men and women had to fight through. But more important, looking forward now for young First Nations men and women. What are your thoughts on those things? I really feel like the institution came a long way, you know, since 1988. Uh, I signed up as a reservist in 88 uh, when I was a university student, joined the Reg Force in 1991, which was right after the Yoka crisis in Kanesadagi. I got to tell you, it, it was a kind of a very, very odd experience uh, because at the end of the day, I joined three Vaindu. And the battalion was recently back, you know, from uh, the Yoka crisis. So people were looking at me. Uh, once in a while, there would be some hard comments made. Uh, I recall one of my sergeant majors sometime, you know, would be crossing me in the corridor and he would say as a joke, well, don't talk to him, you know, is, is the enemy. Uh, so th- that that was quite something. Uh, no, but by the but, but by the other hand as well, we got to keep in mind that the, the leadership, you know, during that period was also uh, very cognizant of the issue we were facing. Uh, for instance, people serving in Valcartier, uh, even, you know, the, the non-Aboriginal who were married with, you know, First Nation uh, women, uh, they were given the, the option not to go. Uh, so the leadership was kind of uh, recognizing, you know, that we'd, it would be putting people in a very, very, you know, uh, difficult situation. And so uh, I would like to think that there were a lot of uh, wisdom, uh, you know, in, in some of these decisions. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, we're still dealing with some um, issues, territorial issues in Quebec, but also in other provinces that have deep root, you know, in history. Uh, land claims going back, you know, to the 17th century. A stuff that is not necessarily easy to address. Mm-hmm. So... Living in a society, we, we, you know, nothing is perfect, but we also need to ensure that we can play nice with one another, if you see what I mean. And, you know, so after a few months, you know, joining the regiment, uh, I did my best, you know. Uh, I was not really paying attention to just the, the few of them sometimes who would be making some, you know, disparaging type of comments. I made my place, made my room. I was given, you know, plenty of uh, leadership opportunity. And uh, here we are, you know, like uh, close to 30 years later, uh, two-star general. I would have never thought for a second that I would be making it at that rank. And um, so I was supported by fantastic people. Uh, I recall, you know, when I was then a young captain in Belcartier, and there were a gentleman, he was a, a Montagnier from Settil, 
Uh, he was a master corporal serving in uh, 12 RBC, 12e Régiment Blindé du Canada. And at some point, he came to see me, and uh, he was looking at me, and he said, well, don't pay too much attention to what the people are saying once in a while. We're 100% behind you, young captain. Uh, mm -hmm. Keep pushing. Keep pushing and show them what we are capable of. So a nice mm. little tap in the back gave me a little bit of energy, stamina. But also, I, I got to tell you, I really leveraged that um, that opportunity, that magnificent opportunity I had, you know, to command men and women to also educate a little bit. Educate, mm -hmm. you know, our fellow citizens on who we are, you know, where we're coming from. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mom is, was born French-Canadian. She got the Indian status marrying my dad. But my grandfather, you know, my French-Canadian grandfather, when he, the first time he came to Wendaki, he was concerned. He was like, hey, my, my daughter is marrying an Indian. How can it be? So, you know, <laughs> I'm not the only one who went through that. A lot of us have been through that. So it's all about education, getting to know one another, and uh, educating the soldiers, uh, educating also uh, whoever I would be encountering during my deployment. And I must admit, uh, wherever I ended up being deployed by the government of Canada, you're talking about human beings, you know, uh, facing one another, emotion, clash. There's political, you know, interest at play. There's economic interest at play. But very often also, you have communities, cultural communities clashing with one another. Hmm. And... Coming from, from a First Nation community, fully understanding, you know, the tribal background. I mean, that was really something I managed to leverage during my mm. career. Uh, I would end up, you know, in, in the Middle East or in Afghanistan. I would be talking, you know, to, uh, to clan leader. I would be talking to tribal chief. I would be talking to, uh, you know, a governor of some district in the Kandahar province. Who were they? Actually, they were like Pashto representative. They were representing their own confederation because the Pashto, they're not a tribe. They are a confederacy. Mm. We, 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 we have the Iroquois confederacy. We used to have the Huron confederacy. So I was kind of understanding, you know, all of these uh, a tribal clan confederacy things. And I would, I would be the first one to step up to the plate and then tell them, well, I'm also a member of a tribe, by the way, back mm -hmm. home. I have my own tribe like you have. Hmm. So always making these connections with the locals. And actually, there was a gentleman who was a Palestinian. And at some point, you know, we're having a casual chat. He was like a, a, a policy advisor for President Mahmoud Abbas, you know, the, the, the president of the Palestinian Authority. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're having a, a fascinating discussion. He is, he is a Palestinian elder. You know, he's like in his late 80s. And he's talking about the Palestinian, you know, experience, the culture. And he's telling me that uh, they're, you know, in the old days, they used to be hating, you know, the sheep brain. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting because in my community, the elders were also having, you know, the moose brain. They were having the moose tongue, you know. Uh, and, and we're talking about cuisine, you know. We're talking about what you do with the animals. And all of a sudden, you know, he's standing up. Is giving me a big hug and he's telling me, well, we must be cousins somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> you know, General Paul, you know, it's a good segue because how you talk, like our elders always talk uh, to us about how we have to walk in both worlds now as First Nations men and women. 
walking in both worlds, you know, and, uh, you know, knowing who you are, where you come from, your language, your ceremonies, traditions, and balancing that. So you're both a Huron-Wendat and an officer, you know, working in the Canadian Armed Forces. What advice would you give young First Nations people thinking about even entering the forces, you know, with that in mind going forward? When I signed up in 88, uh, once again, there were no Aboriginal program in the CAF. You know, we were basically treated like any other Canadian citizens, showing up at the unit, doing basic training, showing up at the unit, making your, your, your place, showing leadership, and so on and so forth. But nowadays, you know, the situation has totally changed. Uh, we do have these uh, these uh, fantastic, you know, Aboriginal NTA programs at play. We have the... Uh, the Alloy program, the Aboriginal Leadership uh, Year Opportunity at Royal Military College. Uh, we do have, uh, you know, Bald Eagle in Western Bald Canada, Eagle, yeah. Black Bear in the Maritimes, in Quebec now we have Carcajou, uh, we have Grey Wolf. I mean, we have all of these Aboriginal programs that are fantastic. And, and actually, they are quite demanding because when you do your entry level training, we teach our young men and women, you know, uh, how to be a soldier, but also we have a fantastic cultural package. And so during the weekend, instead of having a time off or during the evening, you know, our, our young men and women are, 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 are being taught by elders, you know, a lot of stuff related to our customs, you know, our culture, our traditions. And what's fantastic about it is Many of our young men and women, First Nation, Métis, they are not that well connected with our, our roots. And, and the Canadian Armed Forces are giving them a great opportunity to learn about the traditions of our ancestors in a kind of a military type of, you know, program. Uh, it is extremely important, you know, if you are off reserve or even if you, you live on reserve, if you're not being taught as a young man, a young woman about the tradition, or if in that part of your life you don't pay attention, you know, quickly over one or two or three generations, we wake up as nations and we realize how much we have lost. Hmm. So this is a great way for these young men and women to recuperate, to learn about their own heritage. So I like to think that they're coming out of it better citizens with a lot of discipline and more knowledgeable about who they are. Hmm. And I've always been saying, if you want to know where you are heading in life, you got to know where you're coming from. Your, your point about need to know who you are, where you come from in order to know where you're going in balance, walk in both worlds. It's possibility. You're a good example of that walking in both worlds. I want to ask now, General, you've, uh, You've led the Royal 22nd Regiment on combat operations in Kandahar and Gaf in Afghanistan. Share, tell me about that. Share that experience with our, our listeners. I've been deeply, uh, obviously, marked you know, by, by the experience. Uh, so uh, I was commanding the, the, the 2nd Battalion Royal 22nd Regiment Bow Group. So it was an organization made out of uh, 1,200 men and women. And uh, we deployed in the Kandahar province in 2009. Uh, and, and then we ended up doing what we call, you know, counter-insurrection operation. Uh, we were trying to enable, you know, the local authorities in the Kandahar province to basically bring, bring peace, you know, to the country. And uh, 
a very, very complex mission. Um, uh, and I knew a little bit what I was about to embark upon, you know, during the training. But I spent quite a bit of time, you know, reading about uh, Afghanistan politics, Pashto politics. And um, I was always trying to um, ensure that my, my, my team would be well tuned with the mission we were about to be embarking upon. We were not going uh, to war against the Afghan people, not at all. I mean, we were going out there to help the Afghan people, to help their local government, to bring stability so that, you know, they can basically move on with their life as best as they can. Mm -hmm. The Pashtun that I was uh, meeting, they wanted the same thing as you and me for their own children. Education, peace, a future, economic opportunities, and so on and so forth. Human beings all around the world, we share way much more amongst ourselves than we think of. And, but unfortunately, you know, we were facing uh, some very determined, you know, uh, insurgents, uh, quite a few combat operations, uh, unfortunately lost uh, too many of my, my men and women, you know, came back. And then I asked my team, I was like, listen, we, we were bow buddies together. I mean, uh, out there in Panjawi, uh, we were looking after one another everywhere we would be on the explain train. Explain bell buddies for our explain bell buddies that term you use bell buddies. What is that to our listeners? Well, bell buddies is is that concept that when you go into a combat operation uh, with someone, you are developing bounds that are going to be lasting till the end of your life. You know what you go through is so challenging and demanding physically and psychologically that forever you're united with someone because of what you went through together. Hmm. And in order to overcome the fear, overcome the threat, and do something that you know uh, a reasonable human being wouldn't be doing, you need that lift up that you're getting you know, from the people on your left and on your right and so when we came back, I told my people, we were looking after one another out there. Now I want you to look after one another now that we're back home. Because when you're back home from a combat operation like that, it's not over. Hmm. Uh, because many of our brothers and sisters are, have to deal you know, with these demons, that, you know, the, the psychological trauma. And so I was always telling them, from now on, when you see a brother or sister of arms, being challenged, being depressive, step up, help him, help her. Let's talk to one another, so mm -hmm. that people don't do, uh, don't don't commit, you know, something that that would be terrible for all of us. So, bell buddies really refers to the bond that's been built between men and women when they're fighting and serving and looking after each other's backs in times of war. A close knit yes. bond. It's like like a family, and so that that's yeah. what Bell Buddies refers to is that special bond, that unique exactly. bond. Eh? Okay. It has no color. It has no race. It has no ling. It has no language. It transcends it all. It mm -hmm. unites everybody. Hmm. So, 
that's your experience of, of, of war at the, at the front lines and, and, uh, in, um, in Afghanistan. And that was, that's very challenging. So that's quite the experience. Thank you so much for sharing that. Today is a very special day. It's Remembrance Day. What are some of the things that you think about and reflect on? I'm kind of uh, very lucky here in Ottawa because you know, we, have the, we have the war memorial, but we also have the Aboriginal uh, memorial. So uh, in, normally when there's no pandemic, you know, uh, before the national ceremony, uh, a few hours before, or maybe a few days before, we all get together around the Aboriginal uh, War Monument, Veterans Monument. And by the way, it's one of the most beautiful one in town. So um, when I'm standing in front of the Aboriginal War Monument, I'm thinking about uh, all of us. Everything that our ancestors have been doing to defend this country, uh, you know, from, from the arrival uh, of, of the Europeans up to this day. It's, it's, it's that contribution, you know, that Native warrior uh, provided under the New France era, Lower Upper Canada, the War of 1812. Mm -hmm. We were defending this nation, the border of this nation, you know, for as far as we can go. And uh, these alliance that we have forged with the French and the English are, are extremely important for us. And uh, we need to remind, you know, our fellow uh, Canadian citizens of, of these, these arrangements, you know, uh, th these discussions that were, our ancestors were having with the then colonial authorities. Um, what happened is after the, after the, the, the War of 1812, mm -hmm. Canada went through some very important demographic change. The population was exploding. The British immigration was taking a lot of uh, speed. And because, you know, we were no longer needed to defend the border against the American, this is when we started to be marginalized, we First Nation. Mm. We were losing our economic weight. We were, because fur trade was kind of going away slowly. We were losing, you know, our military influence because the colonial war with the U.S. were also fading away. We were losing weight from a demographic perspective. And also we ended up losing weight from a political perspective. And it is in that context that, you know, the Indian Act was put together at the beginning of the Confederation. So this is what I'm thinking of when I'm walking in front of the Aboriginal Veteran Memorial in Ottawa. Now, mm. when we go at the National uh, War Memorial, like, you know, 400 meters away, then it's a totally different experience. I'm thinking about all of these people with who I served, you know, in Croatia, in Afghanistan, in the Middle East. I see a lot of faces going through my, my mind. Hmm. I also always think about these uh, young men and women who are part of my team in Afghanistan who lost their life. Uh, I'm always thinking of them. Uh, I'm thinking about uh, our people who ended up being physically or mentally injured. I'm reflecting on the amazing courage, you know, that they showed when we were out there together. But also I'm thinking about these uh, Korean War, World War II, World War I veterans, 
all of these Canadian citizens from different horizons who decided to step up and do the right thing so that, you know, today we can enjoy living in our country. It's not everything that is perfect. Uh, there's still a, a lot of work to be done, uh, especially with us, you know, First Nation people. But despite all of that, we shall not lose sight of the fact that, you know, we have a magnificent country and, uh, you know, plenty of natural resource. We're still fighting. Uh, you know, we, we took the right political fight right now to ensure that we're not being forgotten. Uh, so, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely proud to, mm. to have served, you know, uh, under all of that. You know, Canada uh, comes from Kanata, comes from my language, you know, the village. Uh, you know, we are Canada. First Nation people are Canada. That's us. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, that's why when we are touring, we're, we're driving everywhere we go in this nation. I mean, we can see... Uh, the name of the villages, the name of the, the, the lakes, you know, the, the name of the provinces, Quebec. Quebec comes from Quebec, which comes, which means, you know, in, in, in Inu, Cree, come ashore, Quebec, mm. come ashore for the fur trade. So, mm -hmm. the, you know, this is us. This is our country. Our, you know, our language are everywhere reminding us of, of the important role that we have played in the past. Mm. But also, let's highlight, you know, the important role that we are still playing today. Mm -hmm. And let's be proud of everything we do, all of us, on and off reserve, in whichever trade, in whichever profession you may have. Uh, you know, let's do the best we can uh, to show to our fellow Canadian citizens that what we bring to, to our society, to our collective society, is, is magnificent and very, very positive. It's a strong statement, uh, General Joe Paul, and uh, you know, to acknowledge you for your service and your sacrifice and your courage for all you've done. You know, you think of these uh, uh, the different conflicts from World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, and World War One. I, I think of Francis Pagamagabo, one of the most decorated uh, snipers in World War One. World War Two. You think of Tommy Prince one of the most decorated soldiers as well, First Nation soldiers. And uh, to me now, our uh, two-star general from the Huron-Wendat uh, nation, uh, General Joe Paul, a two-star general, the highest-ranking First Nations person in the armed forces. Uh, to me, that, that says a lot of your character and your strength in walking in both worlds. And now in light of everything that we've talked about, the challenges past, present, future, what gives you hope? My, my dad, you know, was a member of the band council for a few years, like my, my grandfather. And, uh, my dad was always reminding me that he, he, he didn't get the right to vote until the 50s. I think it was in 52 or 53. 61. John Diefenbaker, the Prime Minister of Canada, he gave the right to 1961. Well, thank you for, for correcting me, Chief. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's great. Okay. But, you know, he was always saying nobody, when I was a kid, were talking about their Aboriginal heritage. It's people were discreet about it. And then he would tell me, and nowadays, everybody's looking for an Indian in their genealogical tree. 
everybody's trying to find, you know, some some original ancestry in their lineage. I guess we should see that as something positive. It's a good thing. I guess, you know, the people don't look at us maybe the same way they used to. Maybe they look at us as something positive. I mean, if they're looking for some maybe Aboriginal roots in their own family, well, I guess I would like to think that somehow, somewhere, they they like who we are. They kind of admire us, you know. They they have some some sort of respect vis-a-vis -vis our nations and our communities. So I guess that that gives me some hope. Hmm. And uh, and also, many of our young men and women now are having, you know. Uh, great jobs, great professions. I mean, we we have engineers, we have lawyers, we have doctors, we have nurses, we have teachers. Uh, so I guess I would simply invite, you know, our young men and women, uh, if you feel like it's time to go back to school, go for it. You know, call mm -hmm. Ben Council. They're going to give you all the support you need, you know, via the, the funding we get from federal, uh, from, from Indian Affairs. And, uh, yeah, educate yourself. Don't be shy to leave the community where you were born and where you grew up. You will go back mm. whenever you want. And you will go back to your people as a stronger man or a stronger woman. Uh, we need education uh, so that we can lead properly our, the, the future of our different nations. And the more educated we will be, uh, the more respect we will get. So yes, that gives me hope. And again, I, to the risk of repeating myself, when I joined in 1988, we didn't have that many, you know, original program. Uh, maybe Bold Eagle was starting them. Just starting. But up. there were no black bear. There, there were no, you know, uh, gray wolf. I mean, in Eastern Canada, we didn't have anything. Hmm. And now all of these programs are out there. So the society has evolved. Uh, mm. The Canadian Armed Forces Institution is also evolving. So that gives me hope. That's awesome. That's a powerful statement and a strong message to close on. General Joe Paul, thanks so much for coming on the Akamema podcast. Thank you uh, for inviting me. I'm very much uh, honored. Thank you, Chief. And I want to thank all the people for listening to the Akamema podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating and tell your friends about us on social media. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers of the Treaty 4 Territory in Southern Saskatchewan for providing our theme music. Until next time, I'm Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations.